their only mission was to get people to dance, um, regardless of your age, um, interests, whatever. Uh, they were expected to be able to play everything from a foxtrot through to metal, through to pop. Um, and they were doing so maybe five nights a week in various bars around the country. You'd, you'd do your, your session, uh, then you'd jump back and squeeze yourselves into a van with all your gear and you'd charge to the next town. Journalist, writer, record collector and avid music buff Alan Perrett. Have you been listening? Listen to the music. Um, they would perform at the local pubs uh, and clubs and they were throughout the country. We had venues everywhere. The live scene at that time uh, bears no resemblance whatsoever to what we have now. It was the early 1970s. The live gig scene in Aotearoa was largely influenced by British and American music. Disco, soul and funk made its way to the charts and the dance floor. What you have to consider is uh, the, the, the broader context of the times as well, uh, coming out of the 60s into the 70s uh, with the Vietnam War, uh, the growth of hippie culture, then the emergence of Muldoon and Rob's Mob. In New Zealand uh, wasn't the most outgoing friendly place I guess at the time I remember it as a child and I think in a lot of ways these bands were, were like people's escape Alan and John Baker released a compilation record Heed the Call named after the Prince Tui Tika song 17 tracks released on a double 12 inch LP apparently it's the first time it's been done for over 40 years In this week's programme, hear music from Māori and Pacifica artists who blazed a trail between the years of 1973 and 1983 in the disco, soul and funk genre as we continue this music series in the second-to-last show for 2017. I'm Justine Murray and this is Te Ahika. When curating the album, John and Alan included songs from the late Dalvanius Prime, Tina Cross, Golden Harvest with the Coco Brothers and Tokoroa band Collision. Hira Morgan and his brother Ali, along with cousins Charlie Hukurua and Colin Henry, were all young kids when they picked up and played their first instruments. Hira's grandfather owned a harp, and all sorts were inside their home. Guitars, drums, and even violins. So how did a small South Waikato band get to tour New Zealand and eventually spend years over in Australia? Hina Morgan has lived away from home for 36 years, but today he is back in Putaruru. He's got a few good yarns to tell. Uh, Hira Morgan from Collision. Kia ora, Justine. Kia ora, tēnā hōtaka. You know, music was always in your home from a very, very young age. Can you just take us back uh, to that time well, I, I come from a family of 17 or 18. Yeah, all, all our older siblings were in 
playing instruments of every sort, piano, piano accordion, guitar, saxophone, trumpet, anything they can get their hands on, actually. And uh, they come through the period of, uh, you know, the big band eras from way back in those 40s, late 40s, and into the Paddy Page area because I had 10 sisters who all sang in that sort of um, feel and uh, with all the harmonies, uh, Connie Francis type stuff. And yeah, that was our, our learning field was that. Yeah, yeah, my brother was on the guitar. It's Alan. Yeah. And my uh, cousin Charlie was on bass. But before that, we had school friends, which was George Marshall on bass at that time. Gordon Lassie, who was a friend of ours at school, he was on keyboards. And then we had a young boy called Paul Metcalf on trumpet, Morris Wilcox on alto sax, Bill Watson on sax, tenor sax, and uh, Ricky Nichols was one of the vocals that joined up with us down that time period. Yeah. So you were playing in the bebop bands of the of the fifties. We sort of came in at the end of where uh, the shadows actually were. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's Cliff Richard in the Shadows, eh? What instrument did you take to as a young kid? Uh, I was a drummer to start with and then uh, on to saxophone and uh, keyboards now, yeah. Did Collision start out as a, as a family band? Uh, sort of in a way, a family band, school band. We were all going to intermediate at Tokoro here and, uh, and we all sort of uh, hung out together from, you know, the intermediate times and then uh, just went on from there and we just uh, got momentum going through the high school time and then yeah we thought yeah hey this is not bad. From playing at local pubs they entered the Battle of the Bands in 1969. They won the Waikato Regionals, they qualified for Nationals and were placed third. As their popularity grew the family formed the band Shriek Machine named after their van. Ah, yeah, Shriek Machine. Well, there was yeah, before that it was called Shriek because we just sort of couldn't think of a name, so we just called it that. And, and uh, we just played around Tokoro, around to um, Rotorua and the Checkers over there, which was um, managed by a guy called Arthur Bone. If he's listening, I think he's still in Topol. Then we sort of uh, graduated to Hamilton doing all those spots up there in the nightclubs around that same period, yeah. Uh, about 1972, uh, you were offered a residency at uh, the Wellington Club Ali Barbers. So you went from basically, you know, small Waikato township to to the big smoke, so to speak, of Wellington. How was that? What was that period like for you for, for, for collision? Well, we sort of, uh, it wasn't quite collision just then, it was Shriek Machine. Right, still Shriek Machine, yep. Still Shriek Machine, and we, uh, yeah, we sort of thought, well, you know what, there's a better life uh, out there playing music than it is working in the bush over there, because we did all that, and uh, yeah, that, that opportunity came up, so we just uh, pulled up house and put it on the back of a big truck and just took it down, all at one move. All the families. What was Wellington like at that time? Was it? It was very much a hub of entertainment, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was jumping. It was uh, yeah, bands everywhere down there. We probably went down there and uh, uh, went into Ali Barbers. There was probably another two other bands that were uh, residents there also. So 
Yeah, because that place started at 9 and finished about 4.30 in the mornings. You had your slots to do, so, yeah, and packed, packed to the rafters. So this young band packed up their gears and moved with their young families in tow to the capital city and into an eight-bedroom home. Hitter played the saxophone, his brother Ali on guitar, Colin on drums and Charlie on bass. In 1972, Shriek Machine were offered a residency at Alibaba's, a popular night spot in Wellington at the time. Eventually, the band parted ways and Hida was a free agent. He rehearsed with Golden Horn Big Band to hone his craft and learn to read music. He played at other clubs and worked alongside a bunch of different bands. A year later, they reformed with a new keyboard player and Collision was born. This set the wheels in motion, literally, for a line pub circuit tour where the band, at the height of their busy schedule, played up to three shows a night. In 1976, they recorded some cover songs and won Band of the Year for a radio competition, which then led to Collision playing a support act for Rene Geyer's tour. As the profile of Collision began to flourish, entertainer Dalvania's prime took notice. Eventually, Collision would be his backup band. But according to Hitter, their style of disco soul and funk was not widely accepted. And some of the audiences were quite tough. Did you encounter any kind of hairy moments on tour? We've come across that. We've actually got belted up and we've belted up a few too. Uh, broken arms, broken cheekbones. Oh no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we come across that, that type of audience and we come across a, the lot in the, uh, not so much New Zealand but Australia where they sort of just not used to this um, funk type music with this drive and brass and everything. They, they, they just really want to hear uh, Akadaka, as they call it, ACDC. By the early 1980s, Hitter was tired of the busy schedule, but he was keen to give other things a go. He joined Rene Geyer's band and played with former Little River Band member Glenn Sherrock for a short stint in 1983. And as he recalls, the audition was pretty stringent. Well, they were doing this thing with um, Glenn Sherrock because he just finished with uh, uh, Little River Band at that stage and uh, they were taking this tour around, so... The drummer, actually, the drummer I was playing with called John Watson, Water they call him, and they, they wanted a sax player, um, percussionist, BBs and everything, so, yeah, I got mentioned and uh, had a quick audition over the, the phone, and that was it. later they, they sent it to me and I was dumped for like for the next nine days then full on rehearsals You auditioned over the phone? Yeah Do you remember, was it just a freestyle piece that you played or was it something 
Well, it was like an interview. You think you can cut this stuff? And I says, yep. Uh, when can you start? I says, well, when you're ready. And they says, okay, we'll send you down a few tunes. So 14 albums later, bang, they were, there it was. Uh, they sent the whole lot down, not telling me what songs they're going to do. Uh, so I just had to just, pro, you know, learn the whole lot, really. 14 albums. Yeah, that's LRB albums. <laughs> Couldn't do it now. And when you, so you spent 36 years over in Australia. Um, when did you stop being very, very, very active in music? Was it like the late 80s or mid 80s? Or what, what happened with, with, with your um, professional music career, so to speak? Um, no, it carried on all the way through, actually. We weren't great musicians. We were just a tough band, yeah. And and your brother and your cousins, uh, cousins uh, Colin, Henry and Charlie Hikuro, are they still, do they still play music? Uh, Charlie's not, Colin is still up in um, Pangara. He's playing around up there. Yeah, my brother is, is flat out too. And we're just really, me and him are, are just putting down another album. We're just working on all the songs now. We've got to probably 16, 18. Will you look at doing this as a commercial release? Yes, you know, we, in, in time we will. I'm going over to Aussie tomorrow and I'll meet up with John Pucky over there, who's a great singer. He's putting down probably five songs, vocals. Yeah, he's already got them and I'll, I'll take over my portable recording stuff and work with him over there probably three, four days. Kia ora, Hira Morgan. Back to the album Heed the Call, a collection of disco funk and soul tracks compiled by uh, Muso mates John Baker and Alan Perrett. Artists on the album include the late Dalvanius Prime, who died in 2002. He was an entertainer, songwriter and musician. He co-wrote a number of uh, waiata with Moi Pewhairangi, including the smash hit Poi Ye. Tina Cross, who continues to entertain the masses, was a regular feature of 70s talent and song shows. The Coco Brothers, Mervyn, Gavin and Eru, are based in Australia, and Kevin, featured in the 2013 movie Mount Zion. Shona Pink of the Pink family is now an Anglican minister, and Mark Williams remains a professional singer and entertainer. He joined the Australian band Dragon in 2013. We join Alan Perrett again, who talks about the music landscape of the time. What you had was uh, bands that could turn their hands to anything, um, and but essentially directed by the audience. And you had the evolution in music over that, that period as well, the introduction of uh, funky rock, like the Doobie Brothers, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, Hendrix stuff was still hanging around but also the rise of disco and, and funk. And people started to want to hear that, and they could see from the stage that there was a demand for it, and so they started playing it themselves. But they developed that sort of an indigenous style, I, I, would, I would suggest, because you didn't get a lot of those bands touring out here. You, you didn't get uh, taught how to play it. A lot of these people uh, played by ear. So you wound up with all sorts of um, diverse input into various songs, you'd have a, a, a full-on disco track, then suddenly have a, a rock uh, guitar lead, or a jazz funk lead if it was someone coming from the Roger Fox big band. 
Uh, and so you had the emergence of a style of disco. I think that that was quite different to, to what you had everywhere else. And obviously, with with the Maori input um, and the Pacifica input, you had um, that influence from the show bands and and just that that certain rhythmic style. You know, and you, you bring in the Maori drum, and you you've, you've got. Uh, uh, golden harvest, essentially. Yeah, you're talking about the jinga 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 strum. Yeah. Strong Fano or family um, vibe throughout the album. There's the it's four, immense. yes, yeah. the Coco Brothers, for example, Golden Harvest, Kevin, Eru, Mervin, and Gavin, and then the mm. uh, Morgan Brothers from from Collision. How popular was that during this era of, of essentially playing next to your cousins or your sisters or your brothers? Well, I think that's possibly a function of, of having um, come out of the provinces, really, the, uh, the smaller towns. You, 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 and a lot of these people, uh, the families, their parents had played and their grandparents had played and it was just something everybody did and uh, it, you know, it, was, it was just like breathing. Like uh, Prince Tuiteka was learning how to play guitars and stuff. at the same time he was learning how to walk. They say you know, he could play six instruments or something by the time he was ten. So it, it was just a fact of life and I think it was just became natural. You, you, you wind up playing with the people you're closest to. But even um, Mark Williams his first band, Face, that came out of uh, Dargaville, was built around the Tane brothers. And he probably would not have got into music at all if it hadn't been for that family. I mean, uh, their parents, clearly um, very supportive of, of their children. They bought them amps for Christmas one year, and he, he heard this noise coming out from next door. So he, he plucked up the courage to knock on the door and say, Can I have a turn too? Don't need no man to give her satisfaction. When you and John Baker decided to to compile this album, curate it essentially, what, where did you start? How did the selection process work in putting together this album? Well, he, um, well, Baker does a lot of uh, reissues, um, and one of the last ones he did was looking at sort of the funkier side of the '60s, and I think it was just a logical jump to move to the '70s. But uh, when we started looking at it, um, we were going in slightly more esoteric direction. We were looking at um, deep cuts from uh, Quincy Conserve, uh, Claude Papesh, uh, various um, sort of uh, bands kind of, I guess, come from a bit more of a jazzier school. But um, then we sort of uh, leapt onto Mark Williams and he sort of became the, the totem and around which everything revolved and, and we just... It just had brought on a different, completely different vibe, and at which we really dug. So we wanted something that was accessible. It was bright. It was summer. Um, it was fundamentally Kiwi, um, and that I think people could celebrate. And as we were putting it together, I mean, we were getting, we were just amazed with the songs that we were able to get hold of, because they came from, in record collecting terms, absolute grails. I mean, when you find them, you celebrate them. 
Um, so we were pulling, putting all those together and, and just realizing, you know, when this comes out, it's going to surprise a lot of people because um, it's kind of a, an era that uh, it's been looked overlooked, um, mm. almost ignored. I mean, you know, there's the whole um, anti-disco movement, yes, that sort of thing. Right, and, yes. And the historic Kiwi cringe. Was, <clears> it, was, the, was the anti-disco movement, um, you're talking about, was it in New Zealand or more so in America? Oh, I think it came here as well. I Did mean, it? Christ, yeah. I was probably part of it when I was a young oh. punk. Because <laughs> it was clashing with the punk era, do yeah. you think, in that time? Yeah, well, well, well you know, music at that time, um, because it was young people, it was very tribal. Um, I mean, you had, in Auckland you had uh, Zwines, you know, the, the legendary punk venue was up above a, a, a disco. <laughs> which caused, caused uh, certain tensions. When you say some of the tracks were, um, you know, hard to come by, what do you mean by that? Where where was the music hiding, um, Alan? Oh, it's just these bands back in the um, they were it was almost blue collar music. I mean, they made their living from playing live, not from recording. Um, so you're not talking about something like Pink Floyd or, or bands of that ilk. You know, who'd put out an album a year and then tour it, and then they'd just go and sit in their mansions. These were um, bands that, that their income uh, was completely dependent on, on playing uh, night after night, week after week. Then you also had the lack of support, basically, from radio. So if you recorded something, unless it was by a major and of a certain ilk, it just didn't get airplay. So they they, they recorded very seldom. Um, mm. Most of these uh, most of these bands, they did one album, maybe a single. A band like the Totals just did did the one um, seven inch Total Man. It was remixed four times, but only came out once. Um, so they're very rare, and they came out in very limited issues. So, um, yeah, I mean, being able to not only expose this music, but to put it in a context with these other bands who are held up as, you know, New Zealand legends like Bruce Tuiteka, mm. um, I mean, uh, uh, I've, I've loved that. It's just been uh, remarkable. I actually hadn't really heard of the Pink family. Mm, mm. They West Auckland, I think it was uh, Te Aratu. Um Their parents, again, uh, had been uh, singers around uh, local churches and did a bit of a gospel act. And, uh, they, their family got into, well, the mother was very into te reo, um and, and music and got them all playing. So they started playing in local churches as well and, and got a bit of a following in that way. used to have a, um, a sort of a, a, a get-together down in Wellington and they'd get all the different um, Christian groups and performers and they'd put on this festival. And then they would select uh, maybe a dozen people out of that who would make up the certain sounds group who used to tour around schools. And so the Pinks were down there, Shona um, Pink, their eldest sister was down there and met, met Pale, um, who was from another um, Auckland uh, gospel group, the Miracle Five or the Miracle Four, I can't remember. Um, and they got together... And that sort of changed the the group a bit because he started writing. And so, um, so that's the Pink family. And then we have the likes of Tina Cross, who was quite. She featured in a number of talent shows during that mm. era, didn't she, Tina? Yeah. In fact, was that how she was discovered as well as yeah, that's right. Mark she Williams. Was, she was at uh, Penrose High. She'd been um, well. She grew up 
uh, out in Notara and she used to sing on her dad's bus. Um, they moved up to Kaitaia, I think it was, uh, and entering uh, talent quests up there. Then uh, they moved back to Auckland and she was at Penrose High, uh, heard a girl sing at assembly, went and approached her after the assembly and said, hey, I can sing too because she wasn't really finding friends, and it turned out it was Kim Hart, who had seven, uh, eventually had singles of her own in the 80s, and she started and eventually brought her into the school band Chalkface, and they used to um, sing together duet style. So on the album of the 17 artists, they had varying degrees of success. For example, Golden Harvest opened mm. um, at mm. the Bob Marley concert back in 1979. So that Almost was... Almost tragically, really. <laughs> was it tragic? Um, Carl Gordon, uh, the, the lead singer, uh, he's a huge Bob Marley fan. He wore his Bob Marley T-shirt in when he auditioned uh, for the role of lead singer. He, was, he, he just really wasn't um, dealing with, with being a pop star. Because he, he sort of went from, from, from zero to 100Ks yes. in two seconds. It was just remarkable. I mean, he was, he was just known all over the country. Um, and he was standing side um, thinking, I, this should be a life moment, watching um, the Whalers play. And he said, they're getting something out of this that I'm not getting. You know? And I'm, so I'm clearly not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And basically that was the beginning of the end of the band. I mean, he, he was sort of dealing with, with a few... Uh, mental demons, and then got to the point where they were, um, well, the band was was having um, sort of difficulties in terms of their future direction. But they were um, rehearsing at uh, Mangrove Bridge Black Tavern, a local pub near where I grew up, and uh, he just basically kind of had an internal meltdown, just got up, walked out, didn't say a word, walked home, got his stuff, then walked to a friend's place and just disappeared. And so that was the end of Golden Harvest? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after that... Yeah, famously done in Mount Zion. Mount, have you yes, seen yes. the movie? Yes, I have, yes, Mount Zion. And in fact, one of the brothers, is yeah, it Kevin? Kevin it, yeah. Kevin is in the movie and Gavin... It's, that's actually had an interesting um, uh, fallout because uh, the cow cows kind of fell apart. Um, there were issues with their, their father who was, who was managing them um, and over their direction because Kevin, he, he was no disco head. He was a, he was a complete rock man. If you, see, if you watch the video... Um, to I Need Your Love and watch him in the background. He actually starts playing his guitar with his teeth. <laughs> he, just, he didn't want to play that song. They very rarely played it live. They saw themselves as a rock band, um, and it was essentially um, when Gavin Kaukau started writing uh, music himself, this was the style that he fell into, and he saw, saw he was just maturing as a songwriter, so he mm. actually dropped out of the band. They were going to reinvent themselves as a kind of experimental rock thing, a kind of along a Pink Floydy kind of vibe. After hearing the album, it was quite remarkable. Golden Harvest is a fundamental one for me. Everything for mine is built around that because, uh, well, Carl went to the same school as I did, so <laughs> I've got, I've got um, alma mater loyalties. Wow, is it just too much too fast in some of these yeah. bands, do you think? Well, that and also lack of industry support. Yeah. Um, you had That was the, the fundamental issue, I think, in the industry. You had uh, lack of management. Um, being able to steer people in the right direction because um, there used to be a, uh, the Battle, National Battle of the Bands competition and everyone would enter that to try and lift their profile and this, the prize was a trip to Australia. So you'd wind up with these bands that had been uh, come from the bottom of the heap here and fought their way to the top. This was supposed to be success. They'd make it all the way to Australia. They had to play on the boat on the way over as well 
and you're right back at the bottom again. Um, and not only that, um, you're having to travel hours and hours to get to gigs in front of people who probably didn't give a crap. And then you had uh, the recording industry, which really wasn't much. It wasn't until uh, people like Alan Galbraith, uh, Frank Douglas in Wellington, um, Ian Morris and Phil Aitken up in Auckland that we got producers who could actually produce. People here didn't know how to press records, they didn't know how to record them. You were, you were, you were battling, really. Alan Perrett, uh, one of the curators um, of the album Heed the Call, of course that name of the album is from the Prince Tuiteka song, Heed the Call. Um, thank you so much for your time, Alan. Be my pleasure. Yes, it's fantastic getting an insight into that era, um, of course, which Heed the Call is based on, and mm -hmm. of course your wealth of knowledge. I'm sure we could talk for another hour, and in fact, would you plan Easy. on writing a book? <laughs> Well, uh, there's quite extensive liner notes in there, but I mean, they're just basically the starters. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. Um, it's just getting the energy to do it. That's right. And the time. Yeah.